Thank you for listening to the sermons here at Ascension Lutheran Church. Our worship services happen on Sunday mornings. 8.30 is our traditional worship service, and 10.30 is our contemporary worship service. We'd love to see you on a Sunday morning. You can visit us also on our website at www.alcrpv.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these people. We thank you for the time that we have to be, to sit, to listen. Lord, we ask that you might do powerful things, that you might transform us, give us hope, give us life, give us your word. Lord, um, we all come in here like those disciples on the road to Emmaus. We all come in here stuck in our ways, seeing what we want to see, but we ask that you open our eyes now, that you give us your grace, your hope, your mercy. So Lord, it is because of who you are and what you have done that we can stand. And so Lord, open our eyes. Let there be less of me so there can be more of you. We give you all glory, honor, and thanks for what you have done in this time and forevermore. We pray these things in the powerful name of our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. That's great. Thank you, Vanna White, for all of your wonderful, wonderful work. You guys, you guys well, wear the dress well. Rise up and walk. Get up. Jesus has gotten up from the tomb, has walked out, has shown us his love, his mercy, his grace, all of those things. And last week, we had the opportunity to look at how the ripples of his resurrection have changed things, how they've changed history. And today, we have another story that's going to give us another side of that same wonderful truth, to rise up and to walk. When I was in um, undergraduate degree, I had a professor. His name was Dr. Middendorf, which is a wonderful name for a theological professor at Concordia University, Irvine, I think. And he um, taught, and this was kind of his his major thought in how to understand the scriptures. So it was a constant teaching tool that he used, and it's one that is very good for us all to keep in mind as well. What he taught was what he called the bowtie theory, okay? And because he was very true to this, he wore a bowtie every day to class. The bowtie theory is this, is that all of human history is leading up to one moment, and out of that one moment, all of human history has been transformed. And the one moment that we place at the center of the bow tie is the cross and empty tomb, to rise up and to walk. This moment has changed everything. Last week, we talked about this side of the bow tie, about how the ripples that came out from that bow tie are still being felt today. Remember, we mentioned that there are 2.17 billion Christians in the world. 2.17 billion Christians in the world impacted by this event. 
And then we started going through and we started looking at the different ripples and we used the map idea of a, a place on a map and how would you figure out what was around there by looking at the traffic patterns. Well, we start looking and we see in 1517, we had the Protestant Reformation. Now, I have a quick word of um, warning that I'm realizing. When I start drawing things on a diagram like this, people are going to go, oh, Okay, so he put the line here, and those lines go that far. Therefore, Pastor Scott thinks that there's only 312 more days until Jesus comes back. I have a piece of advice for us all. If ever somebody tells you the exact day Jesus is going to come back, no longer speak to that person. That is the one rule there. Because none of us know what's happening over here. So this may go on for 2,000 more years or it may end tomorrow. I don't know. Praise the Lord if he comes back tomorrow because things will be amazing. But this is unknown. So we're just going to put these lines. 1517, we had the Protestant Reformation shake the world. In 313, we had the Edict of Milan. So the Edict of Milan, we'll put right there. This is when Christians were made to be no longer illegal in Rome so they could move and call themselves Christians and not be persecuted. But yet in one, what do I have there? 112, we have Pliny's letters, if you remember those. Pliny's letters were the letters to um, the, the governor of the area and saying, I have this new group, the Christians, and they're not worshiping Caesar. What do I do with them? And he said, you can go ahead and kill them if they don't worship Caesar. That's 112. The cross impacts this group of people. So we have this letter that's going out and asking, what do I do with this new group called the Christians? Then we have the gospel of John and all of the gospels written in somewhere between 70 to 90. We also have 70, the destruction of the temple. So the temple gets destroyed. All of those ripples coming out from here. But what happens in today's gospel lesson points us to the other side of the bow tie. There are a couple of stories in the Bible that I would love to go to. If I had a time machine, I would go back and I'd jump into a couple of these stories. Of course, we would go back to the crucifixion and resurrection. But this one right here and the, uh, another one are ones I'd go to. The other one that I would go to is when Jesus is on the lakeshore and he's barbecuing fish for his disciples as they're coming out. And he says, feed my sheep. Because that involves my three favorite things, being on a lake, barbecue, and Jesus. And so if I could get all of those into one time of just hanging out with Jesus, I would be there. This story, though, is another one. Because there are so many little questions I have of what's going on in this story. So grab your pew Bible, if you can. And open us up to Luke 24, page 966. And I want us to look at this story, and then we're going to fill in this other side here of the bow tie. So, Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13. First thing I want you to notice is right above it, there's another header. And the header in the Pew Bible says, the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, if we go one verse above it, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. Then he went home amazed 
at what had happened. This is the highlight. Easter, Peter goes to the tomb. He looks. There's no more Jesus there. His clothes are there. And he leaves and he goes home. You'd think the next part of the story, the next line, would be, well, what did Peter say? Where did he go? Who did he talk to? What happened? And yet Luke cuts to this other story of these two guys walking away from Jerusalem. Now, it's important because you'll notice now on the same day, same day, so when are we? We're Easter Sunday. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. A couple of things to take note. Where are they headed? Well, the city called Emmaus. Emmaus is seven miles away, and seven miles in ancient Israel in this time period might as well be a million miles. If you're seven miles away from where you are, no one knows who you are. In fact, people may never in their whole life go seven miles away from home, right? Because that's really, really far to travel. And it's interesting because even in our own lives, if you were to drive seven miles and spend a week seven miles away from your house in you know, a hotel or something, you may never run into someone you know that far. So what are they doing? The very day that Jesus is rose from the grave, these guys get up and start walking. What is the answer to that question? I mean, can you see like Peter runs into the house and Peter's like, guess what? He rose from the grave. The, gra- the tomb is there. It's empty. The grave clothes are there. An angel talked to the women. Mary says she saw Jesus. All of these things. And these two guys are like, well, you know, I, I have a doctor's appointment in Emmaus tomorrow. I guess I really should start walking. Or, as probably more likely, what they did was they heard the news that the tomb was empty and they knew the trouble that was about to be brewing in Jerusalem. And so they went, you know, I have a little place in Emmaus we can escape to for a while and just see what happens while this all needs to settle down. And they start walking out of town Now, just a quick um, little aside, because it mentions by name this Cleopas, and so we may ask this question, well, who is Cleopas? And this is from a commentary on Luke from Arthur Just. He says, Cleopas may also represent the Semitic name Clopas. Mary, the wife of Clopas, is mentioned in John 19.25, and Clopas and Cleopas may in fact be the same person. That assumption seems to lie beneath the early church's tradition that Cleopas is Clopas, which is the brother of Joseph, making Cleopas the uncle of Jesus himself, and that the unnamed Emmaus disciple is Cleopas' son, Simeon, later the second bishop of Jerusalem, the leader of the Jerusalem church after AD 70. Kind of interesting. What if it's Jesus' uncle and cousin? who are walking out of town, right? This is assumptions, but we have this name that we're not quite sure where it fits. Okay, they're walking out of town. Jesus starts walking with them and they don't recognize him. And he goes, hey, what's going on? And they say, haven't you heard of the things that have happened in Jerusalem? No, 
What things have happened? <gasps> Let me tell you. There was this guy, and he was doing great things and doing marvelous things and teaching, and then they crucified him. And now there are people saying he rose from the dead, and he's no longer there. Some of our own believers say that, and our women say they saw him. Can you believe all that's happened? And then Jesus, and this is why I said, I would love to be there when he's talking. Look at verse 27. Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Can you imagine listening to Jesus go through the Old Testament and say, remember this story? This talked about me. Remember that story? This was pointing to the Messiah. Remember this? Could you imagine that walk? Can you imagine the things that he's saying? Uh, Martin Luther says that the, the Bible is a cradle to hold the Christ child. And all we have to do is look in it and find him in the scriptures. The challenge is sometimes seeing him there, but he's on every page. Jesus going through the whole Old Testament and pointing to himself. So what do you think he said? Well, let's just, I mean, let's just play with that idea. We have this half of the gospel going out and transforming the world, changing people, releasing them from sin and shame, allowing them to live free now and forever. Well, what leads up to the cross? So, some ideas. These ripples that we have here. Let's start. These are very big dates because we don't exactly know for sure. Um, around 2000-ish, we have Abraham and the call that he is going to be a new nation. I am going to bless you and you are my people. So we'll use blue here. We have Abraham. Then going to about 1800, let's say we have Joseph ending up in Egypt and Joseph bringing the people into Egypt. The people grew up. They became more and more and more until Pharaoh got nervous about them being around. And so he put them into slavery. And then we have Moses and Moses and Egypt, and he leads them out through the promised land, I'm sorry, through the Red Sea into the promised land, and there he is around 1,300. Then, so um, then at 1,000, we have David, King David. David's son Solomon builds the temple. So in 960, we have the temple being built, and then in 930, we have the two kingdoms. Now, we need to pause here for a second, because if you were to point to when is the highlight of this side of the bow tie, it would be right here. The building of the temple, King David, that is the peak Israel. I want you to notice something, though. 960, the temple is built. 30 years later, the kingdom of Israel splits into two, into a northern and southern kingdom. I am 40 years old. Yes. On Friday, I turned 41. 
If I was 10 years old when the temple was built and finished, as old as I am today, I'd watch the kingdom split in two. And I just told you that the height of the kingdom was King David. This peak lasted less than my lifetime. And it all started falling apart. And it all starts falling apart, and they are no longer in charge. In 721, then, we have the northern kingdom is destroyed, followed not that long by the fall of the southern kingdom. And from this point forward, all of this, they are no longer in charge of their land. They are renters. They're either conquered by the Persians, Babylonians, Greeks, or Romans. They own that land. Yes, eventually, they got to rebuild their temple here in 516. But that time, it was under the Persian control. This is the reality of this part. These people who peaked here are calling out for a Messiah, are waiting for something to change because everything is going downhill and getting worse and worse. Jesus then could say to them, you know, all of this happened. And then in Genesis 3, don't you remember in Genesis 3 when um, Moses wrote the book of Genesis and he said that there will be a serpent and one day you, the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. That was me, the Messiah. Messiah, I am the one who's going to come and crush their head. Don't you remember in Psalm 22 when we heard about a man torn apart and torn from limb to limb and end to end, but in the end he will say, for God has done it. I have done it. Don't you remember in Isaiah 53, and these are just stars along the way. Don't you remember in Isaiah 53 when it talked about a suffering servant? And I talked about how there will be one pierced for our transgressions, crown of thorn placed upon their head. Don't you remember? That's me, the Messiah. Don't you remember in Micah chapter 5 when it says there will be one born in Bethlehem that will be the Messiah? I was born in Bethlehem. All of this Jesus is laying out to maybe his uncle and his cousin as they're walking along this road, giving them this kind of lesson <laughs> this is mind-blowing to me. What did Jesus do on the afternoon he rose from the dead? He walked with two disciples to Emmaus, telling them the story of their salvation. And most of the time, they didn't understand. This is the God that we have. On the very day he rose from the grave, he was willing to spend that day with two disciples telling them about his great love for them. He will go as far as he has to go, seven-mile walk to Emmaus to be with them. What an amazing God. So then they go, and, and, and I love this move, right? Jesus continues to walk on, and they go, hey, 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 you have some good stuff to say. You want to stay with us? We have some food. We'll spend some time together. It's getting dark. It's not safe to be out in the dark 
Okay, I'll eat with you. And he breaks the bread and their scales from their eyes fall and God does something and boom, they know it's Jesus and then he's gone. And they run back in the dark, right? Because now it's dark and they run back to go to the disciples and say, guess what happened? What did Jesus do? He spent his afternoon taking two disciples who were walking away from Jerusalem and saying, come on back, come back to Jerusalem, back to your people. This is what Jesus did with his afternoon of his resurrection. After conquering sin and death, he turned two disciples around to bring them back. Now, they lived in a very interesting time, these disciples, because if we look at our bow tie, this moment happened like right here, right? And in this moment right here, it happened in a 50-day time period that is unlike any time period in history because it's after the resurrection, It's Easter afternoon after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit has not yet been poured out on Pentecost 50 days later. There's this little 50-day period here that exists when these two disciples are there. But you know where you and I exist? We exist somewhere out here. We have the privilege of knowing that this happened and yet the Holy Spirit indwells us now, here, today. You are full of the Holy Spirit. The God who was willing to walk seven miles with the disciples to Emmaus to turn them around is in you and with you so that you then can carry this message out to the world, telling them, of the good news of what Jesus has done, that he has transformed not just the forever, but the present day. He turns people around. He brings people home. He calls them by name. This is the Jesus that we worship, and this is the Jesus that fills us up. And so Jesus says to us, he says, there are two things, two commandments that I lay upon you. The first is this, to love God, And the second is to love your neighbor. So go out and love God and love your neighbor, knowing that you're not doing it alone, but you're doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because this day changes everything. All of history was waiting for the cross. And then out of history, the world has been transformed. And we get the privilege of carrying this good news out so that you no longer have to live in sin and shame. And you can tell your neighbor the same. Hey, come and hear about a God who was willing on the very afternoon of Easter to walk with his disciples to turn them around. And for, (laughs) you know, Easter is a hard long season for Townsend and I, right? On that, we do a lot of worship services. We have a lot of time. And you know what I did on the afternoon of Easter? A whole lot of nothing because I was exhausted. Jesus had just conquered sin and death, been to the gates of hell and back, and he didn't give up on those two. He will not give up on you. He will not give up on your neighbor. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who shows up We thank you for being the God who knows us, who's with us, and who is for us. Lord, we ask now that you come 
and you give us your presence. You come and you give us your, your truth and your love. Lord, we, um, we are like the disciples. We see trouble brewing and we run. <laughs> we move the other way. We go away. We try to hide because, God, we are full of fear sometimes. But you are the God who shows up. You are the God who gives us life. You are the God who gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can stand. Heavenly Father, teach us. Teach us what it is to stand in your truth, to stand in your grace. Lord, help us to come into this place and know that you are God and you are with us and you are for us. Lord, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us life. I hope this meal today hits a little different because we just heard that the disciples, those two, they didn't get it, did they? They're walking, they're listening to the greatest Bible study that's ever been spoken, and they're still like, oh, that's neat. Why don't you stay with us? And what was the moment they were transformed? The bread, the breaking of bread. God comes to you. In the breaking of bread, he drops scales. He gives you life. He gives you peace. He gives you hope in the breaking of bread. And so let this meal today drop whatever scales it is from your eyes so that you may see the goodness of God, taste his goodness and his grace for you.